0: Take two. Now we're going, I always wanted to have one of those director things now. We're going to switch gears. We're going to move on to a different thing now. And what I wanted uh, to, I, w- I would love to have the ability to do this, so I'm going to do it um, rhetorically. Don't, rhetorically, just don't respond. You can laugh if you want, because I want to be thought of as being someone who's funny. But don't answer my questions necessarily as I'm asking them. But It would be great to know why you came to faith, why you came to this church. Now, in the first service, when I asked that question, they kind of thought, like, well, well, the snow wasn't that bad. But I don't even mean just why did you come today, unless this is your first time. But why would this be a church that was on your radar screen that you would even come and be a part of? And it, it doesn't have to be just about faith on 250 Kennedy Memorial Drive. If you started off in another church somewhere and you eventually migrated over to here, or you've moved to the area something, why is it, in a more general sense, you chose to go to a church? You and I live in a neck of the woods where it isn't the culturally um, uh, pressured kind of thing that it is in other parts of the country. And even that's starting to wane and go away. But you know, chances are if you live in a neighborhood or you're on a street with other people that can see you and everything, you, you might have stood out a little bit like a sore thumb getting up early on a Sunday morning and, and getting out and doing your thing. We're not in an area of the country where everyone's putting on their Sunday best, the cars are all backing out of the driveway at the same time and heading to their their, uh, their church of, of choice or anything. It's unique. It's a little bit out of the norm for people to choose to go to a church. And so uh, we ask the question when you fill out one of the visitor cards with us, what brought you to faith? And we give you about this much room to answer it so you don't have a, a place to really tell your story. It's like, well... Why I picked faith is one thing, but why I felt like I needed to go to church is another and all that stuff. And so hopefully, as we get to know you, we know those stories. But the the question is, what attracts you to a particular church? What are the things that stand out to you? And and often they go beyond just the, well, I liked the way that the building looked along the road, or I, you know, I, I like, although a lot of people put, You know, they they love the sign. I wish I could tell the person who comes up with those messages how great a job he's doing. Uh, I want to clarify for the record, though, I do not write those original. Those are usually borrowed from other things and stuff like that. So if they're bad, I can say, don't blame me. I didn't write it. If they're great, I have to go, well, you know, at least I picked it, you know. Anyway, Henry's really the hero, Henry Phillips, because he puts them on the sign. So he's the man. Especially when you see some of the weather, he's having a fight to put those up there. It could be any kind of reason why you decided to come to faith as a church. I I would venture to guess the reason why you came isn't always necessarily the reason why you stay. In other words, you have an opinion about something, you have an impression about something, you come into it and then you realize it's not quite what I expected or something caught me off guard that draws me to it that I didn't see coming. In other words, there could be a different reason why you stay instead of just the reason why you initially came. There's also a varying bunch of reasons why you might leave. You know, there's all kinds of things. If I were to poll everybody in this room, I'd say, how many of you, let's do it, this is fun. I I, I wasn't thinking of it. How many of you right now, temperature speaking, are too warm? Okay, I'm, I'm with so many of you right now because it's like, no, we can't have it hot enough you know, how many are too cold right now? All right. How many could care less? Because you're just realizing that temperature is even something to notice, right? All right. So if faith became the kind of church that overly stressed out, help follow me on my illustration. If we overly stressed out about things like, oh, I hope the temperature's right or else people are going to leave. You can see how difficult that would be to figure that out. Let's keep it going. This is fun. I'm going to get to a point where I get us in trouble. I know I am. So let's try this with the sound. Okay. Keep in mind this morning, we didn't have a drum kit. Drum kit usually brings a different energy to the whole thing, which I love. I want to feel that kick drum right in my middle bone in my chest. Not not all of you are on that same page. I don't know if you notice, we say this and everything, but what you hear way back there might be drastically different than what you hear up here or up against the wall where it echoes a little bit more in that corner. So keep that in mind. If you don't like where things are. How many of you thought it was kind of loud this morning? All right, just a few of you. How many of you thought it was, it was great, but I could have even had it louder? Okay, oh, you're my crowd. I love this church. How many of you like, I'll take whatever you give me. I, I could sing to it. I could listen to it and everything. So, all right, you see, I, except for the first group of hands, that thought it was too loud. And I think, again, if the drum kit was here and I asked that, we might get a different response a little bit. But you can see if, if, we were, if that was our target, if we were trying to build the success of our church based on your responses to everything, we'd be like, I don't know who to please. I don't know where to go. So fortunately, we have a standard for how to do church in a healthy way that allows it to last And and I'm not just saying we as in faith, we certainly do too, but churches through the centuries have had a standard that means I don't have to chase all the whims and fancies of everybody that walks through the door. There's a reasonable amount of decency and a standard that we have to have, because if we didn't care what you liked or didn't like, we wouldn't pay money to have the building clean. We probably wouldn't care if the speakers started blowing and everything. would be like, oh, it's more than, it's about more than just a clean building or a good sound. We could get on our high horses, but instead we do pay attention what do people like what would help them to be able to focus on what we're doing here instead of be distracted by it but if you chase that i mean i I don't i don't mean to tell you something you know that's going to offend you but we're fickle human beings we got our opinions all over the place and the one thing you think is your opinion could change tomorrow and so what we become as humans is these moving targets try to please me try to hit me go ahead (laughs) and we can't do it so the church as an organization, as a, as a living organism of what God has instilled in this earth, has to have a standard of conduct deeper and more long-lasting and, quite frankly, more predictable than you and my in our passing fancies, if I can use it. Does anybody ever use that word fancies anymore when it comes to what you prefer? No, I didn't think so. So I just completely, I came, became completely irrelevant with one word. So what makes a church healthy? That's what we're seeking to discover. Whenever it's my opportunity to come up here and speak to you guys, we've been spending time in the book of James. We're going to take a break from that for the foreseeable future. I'd love to come back to that at some point. But sensing the, the, the opportunity to, to shift gears a little bit, what I thought maybe we could do with the time that I'm given, uh, usually about once a month, is to take a section of church... Um, the, one of the underpinnings, if you will, of what makes a church healthy, and we work through that. So in other words, how, why does faith as a church do what it does? Those of you that have been through membership class, you get doses of this as you come in and you, you, I, we see a lot of people go, oh, that's why you guys do that. I had no idea. And so what we're going to try to do is to share a, a number of those things, but not just from the preference standpoint. I'll give you, a, for instance, one of the preferences that we try to do, we have a weird sloped floor here. It's an old movie theater, right? And a lot of times, if you go to a church that really has like, this lively music and this great worship environment, they can go for 45 minutes. People will be on their, on their, on their, on their feet, raising their hands and doing all that. You know what we, what would happen at faith because of the sloped floor is people would be like, I love Jesus, but I can't stand anymore. My calves are on fire. Ladies would be like, I'm in heels. I can't do this. So it was one of the things that occurred to us. We have to have some breaks in order for us to stay engaged in worship. And every time I tell people, oh, that's why you guys do that. I was wondering why you always put announcements after like the second or third song so that everyone's legs can go, oh, thank you. Got to sit for a bit. Not because of any major spiritual reason, but because of who we are as people. That's chasing one of those preferences a little bit. So what we're going to talk about is not necessarily those surface things that can kind of come and go and change with the the times and everything, but what are the true things that make the church healthy? Where should we remain engaged? We want to challenge you as we go through this so that you continue to value the best things about what God has built the church to be about, so that those things remain in high esteem on your list. Okay, that's a great target. Wherever I end up, because people are people, life is life. We don't always stay with the same church. Things change. Wherever I go, I want to make sure I'm keeping these standards held high. So we want to equip you for that. We also want to challenge ourselves as leaders. We want to be able to look kind of like what James said to us, a few months back about looking in the mirror, holding up the Bible as the perfect law of liberty. So we look in, we see the reflection, and we go, I don't really like everything that it's pointing out, but at least it tells me what I need to start working on. So we want to do that as well as we go through this. We have, uh, I'm, I'm using a book actually by, written by Mark Deaver that I found very helpful. He identifies some of these things. He's a very biblical um, uh, preacher and a, a well-respected guy. So I'm going to kind of follow some of his, his essential pieces, but uh, we're going to put it in our context here at Faith as we go along. So with the uh, time that we've got left, which I'm seeing is about 20 minutes or so. Can you guys give me 20 minutes? We're going to get through some of this from a, it's, it's a topical message, which is funny because I'm actually leading into eventually talking why we don't do topical messages here at faith. I'm going to use a topical message to get there. Talk about a hypocrite and a topical message is I have something I want to get across and I'm going to make sure that the scripture supports what I'm trying to get at. The reason why we don't do that a lot, as you'll see, is because it's really easy to cherry pick the verses you want and make the case. I could say all kinds of weird things and say, well, it came from the Bible, and you guys would leave going, we're never going back there again. That guy's whacked. So there's a way to do topical messages, but they should be used very sparingly as far as we're concerned, and I'll get into the reasons why. But unfortunately, have to use a topical in order to get there. This whole study about what makes a church healthy has to begin with how we are supposed to handle the Word of God, correctly approaching, applying, teaching the Word of God, because everything else we do flows from that. Everything else that you and I do should flow from how we approach and understand the Bible. And so our church needs to flow out of that as well. And we start to get our scriptural support and our understanding from a basic theological assumption that the authority over the church is not given to any man. And that's a great relief. Pastor Bill will be the first one to tell you it is a great relief as a senior pastor coming from his perspective not to feel like all of this is completely up to me that I have to make the rules. I have to figure out where the future is and all these kinds of things to understand that we are stewards of what Jesus Christ himself is the head of and points us in a direction to be faithful to it. Yeah, we lead with our own personalities and our human styles and things like that, but, but the responsibility of this thing really going well always falls back on the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is our theological underpinning, if you will, of how we are supposed to approach church is that first and foremost, it doesn't belong to us. Let that sink in for just a second. That is an unintended pause on my part, I will confess. But as I say that out loud, I instantly start cataloging in an inventory in my head going, yeah, how much of this though is supposed to go the way I want it to go? I keep saying it all belongs to him, but I get really tweaked and torqued if it doesn't quite go the way I want it to go. So you can see where just a minor point, it's actually quite a big one, but a minor point of theology can start to get us to take inventory as to what we're supposed to do with all of this. Second Peter 1 verses 20 through 21 is a, is a passage of Scripture that's very well uh, known and referred to when uh, folks are trying to write about the authority of Scripture and the authority of God having total control and ownership of all that happens. So let's read that together. Second Peter 1, he says this to us. He says, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So the very words that God wanted us to hear did not come from men saying, been thinking a lot about God. I really want to write a few things down. And if anybody decides to read it in the future, bonus, but you know what? I just want to write my own kind of my musings and things like that. He says, no, no, prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. It didn't arrive by one's own human will. Instead, what happened is men who were holy, that is they were willing to be set apart for the glory of God, put themselves in a position to hear from God. And God said, I want you to write this and I want you to say this and I want you to be faithful to it. And if you start going around and saying all kinds of wacky things, saying it represents me and it turns out to be wrong, they'll kill you for it. That's how serious this was. So God says, don't get this impression that man's responsible for the Bible. Don't even, the Bible itself doesn't even allow for that. The proper way for you and I to do church, that is to, to lead a church, to be a part of a church, to come together in Christian community where we build one another up, where we keep each other in check, all of those things, they do not rest with human intelligence because it wasn't man's idea to begin with. The authority of how church should be done does not rest on us. 2 Timothy 3, another very common passage of Scripture for dealing with this authority. Where does the authority come from? What is the Bible useful for? Really helps strengthen this. We're going to look at it more in detail in a few minutes. But for now, one little phrase pops out right at the beginning. It says, all Scripture... That really popped out. It's pretty awesome. (laughs) Yes, Lord, I hear... All scripture is inspired by God. You and I have our own understanding of inspiration, right? We've been around plenty of the arts where we go, okay, that person's inspired. Or that song comes across and the writer says, I was really inspired by something like that. And what we interpret the word inspired to be is sort of like a nudge... That has been motivated by something we've been around or something we've taken in or experienced. So if I want to be a poet about things about nature, I'm not going to be very inspired if I'm living in the basement, not getting out and seeing what nature looks like, right? So inspiration for us on a human level is more like like, um, something spoke to me, I was moved by it, and then I commented, wrote, or reflected on it, I was inspired by. But fortunately for us, scriptural inspiration runs much deeper. It could be interpreted that God breathed the words that man wrote. If God is breathing life into the scripture, it's more than just saying, "Uh, I've been watching God at work. I'm going to write a few things down about what I'm seeing. God is good. God is, or it's supposed to be God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for this food. And so we do that, right? I I hate it when things don't rhyme. Just because it has two O's doesn't mean it rhymes. I've got to stick to my notes. I'm sorry. This is what my wife has to deal with, the tangents of. Romans 1 says that God created everything, plants man in the middle of it. And Romans 1 is basically telling us, this is a book in the New Testament, right out of the gate he says God planted man in the middle of all this creation so that man would look around and go, whoa, I couldn't have done any of this. This is amazing. I need to find out who made this. And if I find out who made this, maybe he'll tell me what he wants from me. Maybe I'll figure out if I, can, if I can be buddies with him and hang out with him and all these kinds of things. In other words, this general revelation, that means God made it so abundantly clear to his creation that he exists, that we were supposed to respond in a way that says, oh man, this is amazing, i got to find out who made it. And, you know, we see the the proof of that through the generations, through the tribes and tongues all across the world for all the the years that we've been on this earth where they erect these statues or these things. I got to worship this God. I got to why? Because he's a fire God or he's a sun God or he's a because I didn't do this. There's got to be something bigger than me in this universe, so I'm going to worship whatever it is I think it is, and hopefully I'm right, and hopefully it doesn't squash us like a bug. And God says, I gave you this general revelation so that you would respond to me and find me, and those who truly seek me will find me. Unfortunately, man, by and large, rejected that and said, I really would rather find gods of my own making, the ones that I feel like I can appease, and there's no you know, wiggle room around it and stuff. So if I, if I dig this hole, then the rain doesn't come down over here. or Something silly like that. There's just, I want a God I can control. We've been doing that since creation. So when God's plan of general revelation was failing, as he knew it would, because we wouldn't respond to it well, he had already set in motion the wheels of special revelation. Very direct communication. And that was wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. John 1.1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So God the Father is saying, if I am going to communicate to these people who are blowing off everything I've put around them to prove I'm real, I'm going to send one, Emmanuel, God, with us to come down and to relate to them to present my word because he is my word. Brian Chappelle, a uh, pretty respected pastor and and teacher and writer, was writing a book to preacher types about Christ-centered preaching. And he says this about Jesus linking himself to the word. He says, by identifying Jesus as his word, God indicates that his message and his person are inseparable. The word embodies him. So that's why you may have heard over the time, sometimes uh, uh, Christians that have been around for a long time kind of pick on the fact that why, is, why are the words of Jesus indicated in red letters in our Bible? Why are they more special than the, the words that are in black print? And the reality is if we understand our scriptures, they aren't because Jesus is the living word, all of it, not just the things that he said. It's helpful to have those things that he wrote and marked in red. So don't go out and be like, yeah, this Bible stinks. I'm going to get a black print only one. Don't think that. It's still helpful to find out what he was preaching and it's easier to find those things. But it doesn't elevate. Jesus' words at that time don't matter more than Solomon's words back in the Old Testament, in other words. Because Jesus is the word. He indicates it as well. Because as the head of the church, Jesus over and over and over again pointed to Scripture. I, won't, I don't have the time to get into all the examples here. But suffice it to say that even when Satan was tempting Jesus... When um, the religious leaders, specifically the Sadducees, who didn't believe in a resurrection at all, were challenging him. Oh yeah, Mr. Smarty Pants, who, you know, how is marriage going to work in heaven? And all these kinds of things. All of these challenges that Jesus received, the temptations of, of Satan and all those other things. His response was always in the form of, have you not read what the scriptures say? Do you not know that the Bible says this? Or that the scriptures point to this direction. Jesus always fell back on the authority of scripture. And I think for two reasons. One, because they were the, he is the living word. It was the words he, he said. So he still agrees with them. He hadn't changed his mind. But secondly, for you and I to have a glimpse of the understanding of like, this thing is actually reliable. Like, it works in those circumstances. You can't tell me that Jesus was tested, in in, uh, uh, that, that our testing is in any worse way than Jesus was. And yet, in all of those things, he relied on the word as a response to those temptations, to those testings, and to those trials. The eternality of the word, that is the the fact that the Word, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God, the eternality of the Word, capital W, gives it its perfection and endurance. The old reformers would use the Latin phrase sola scriptura to get across the idea of all you need is, no, that's the Beatles. Don't fill that. All you need is Scripture. Scripture alone is all you need. Sola, meaning alone, scriptura, scripture. We've modernized it in our context here at Faith, and it has been said in a lot of other places, not like we just came up with this, but in our plumb lines, our plumb lines are some identifying statements that the leadership spent some time around and thought about what are the things about faith make us a church? What makes us faith as opposed to other great churches in our area? What are some of our identifying things that we're going to hold to that we don't ever want to sway from? And one of those plumb lines you've heard Pastor Bill say over and over again that we let the Bible interpret the Bible, sola scriptura, that the Bible in and of itself has enough authority, has enough reference, has enough checks and balances to answer to itself and for itself. It doesn't need archaeological digs like we find the vases or the other things like that to say, Solomon was real. It doesn't need all of those things to be proven true. Now, we as humans are helpful that those things happen. I'm glad they're still unearthing things from the old times. I'm glad whenever they find portions of Scripture in the original language that back up the fact that we have the real thing. As human beings, we need that, but the Bible doesn't. The Bible is its own authority, it's its own reference manual. It will answer itself, it'll clean itself up, it'll check itself, it'll present itself, it will preach itself because of its self-identifying power, because it is the embodiment of Jesus. Just as a side note, if you ever get hung up like I do sometimes on why did God entrust such an important message with some human instrument? We know that God can do it directly. He did it with the Ten Commandments, right? It's like chisel, chisel, chisel. It's not what he used, but you know, something on stone and everyone's like, oh, I know what God said because he just burned it on there and then he brought it right down and all this kind of stuff. Why doesn't God do that sort of thing all the time? If you know the story of Jonah, Jonah didn't want to go uh, for all kinds of reasons, either racism, culturalism, all these other problems that Jonah had with Ninevites. He wanted nothing to do with them, would have been totally happy for them to die and go to hell, mind you, a prophet of God. And God said, I want you to go and share my grace and forgiveness for these wicked people. And Jonah said, I don't want to go. They disgust me. They drive me nuts. I don't want, I don't even want to see him redeemed. God could have said, you know what? That's fine. I know the address. I don't want to use a punk like you. You're just going to mess it up anyway. So why don't I go say what I need to say and I'll get the job done. Instead, he works through Jonah, through trials and all that sort of stuff. You know, he's ends up in the belly of a fish, whale, whatever we're supposed to call it gets dropped off there, and it works. What Jonah has to say is exactly what God told him to say. It just was a mouthpiece. It's the strangest thing to me. He just says, uh, God say you're supposed to stop doing what you're doing and seek his forgiveness, whatever. And he goes off, and, and they go, you're right. We need that. How does that work? And yet it does. So if you're ever scratching your head like me, this is a way long rabbit trail, if you're ever scratching your head like me and say, why would God have to do that? Understand that you and I, if God ripped through the ceiling right now and said, thou shalt go to Applebee's after church, we'd be like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Where's Applebee's? I don't know where. And it's like, it's right there. It's really easy instructions. But God broke through the, the world we know and spoke to us. So we fall flat on our face. And it's almost like we missed the message and all. God knows how we're made. He knows how fragile we are. He sends delivery mechanisms and things that we can relate to and understand. He uses uh, broken, foolish prophets. He uses um, uh, redeemed writers of the New Testament that became the disciples of the church, the apostles of the church. And he even used his very own son to go through all of that to be born as an infant and go through all that he went through to reach us so that we would relate Because they look like us. They sound like us. They wear the same sandals we wear back in that day, to be contextually correct. There's something I can relate to in that. If God just ripped through the ceiling every time he wanted to tell me something, I don't know how to handle that. So yeah, he risked the fact that many would disregard the message, that they wouldn't have to hear it much, they wouldn't want to hear it much. Because I know that guy. He can't be speaking for God. But some of us have heard. Some of us have responded. This is... The, the, the plan that the Lord has laid out. And so he's given us a relatable word. I want to I wanna strengthen this even more still. 2 Timothy 3 says this in verses 16 and 17. Again, this is our go-to passage really to understand how important the Bible is for church health. It says, All scripture is inspired... Waiting for the chime. Lexi, no chime this time? Okay, we tried. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching... For reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. There's a long list here. In five more minutes that I have, I cannot exposit all of these words, so let's suffice it to say this. That God's word is still useful, that's another way of saying profitable, That Paul is actually telling Timothy, he's training him to be a young preacher. He says, don't ever forget that the scripture that has been God-breathed is useful still. It's relevant. It's applicable for teaching. That is, sharing in a general sense who God is, what you need to know about who God is. It's still useful for that. If you ever want to know anything about God, look here first and hold up your understanding to what the scripture is saying. It's, it's, it's applicable still. It's useful for reproof, what we would also say for conviction. If, if I walk into a garage and there's a, what could be a classic automobile sitting there, you know, kind of one of those hot rods and stuff like that, but it's not been restored yet, it's kind of half under a cover, the person that owns it hasn't really cared for it, rust has gotten to it, all these kinds of things, I could walk in and say, that thing's a piece of junk and could have been made better. That's an example of conviction. I'm making a right statement of what should change and what isn't right about a situation. But then I can just say, "Okay, my jo- my job's done here. Good luck with that." And I've walked away, and that automobile is still worth a you know a fraction of the value it could be if someone gave it some attention. The Bible's still useful for that. The Bible is still relevant when it comes to pointing out the flaws of you and me. We still need to be open to that, but what the Bible also does is it comes in and says, but it's also useful for correction, or what we would say in this context, restoration. The Bible comes in and says, this is all wrong. You've got a classic automobile holder, just with, with some attention to detail, we could get this thing right. So... Um, I'm going to take my coat off here, roll up sleeves. Hey, get me that paint spray, if you will. Get me that file brush. We're going to get rid of some of this rust. We're going to do this. The Bible goes to work on, after it's pointed out the flaws. Keep this in mind as you're thinking about the way the Bible's looked at culturally speaking today. It's judgy. It's pointing a finger at this. And you're wrong. And you're a wicked sinner. And you disgust me and all that. That's what people think the Bible's doing. The Bible says, I don't just stop at pointing out what's wrong. And there's plenty wrong. I rebuild and I restore. And Paul is telling Timothy, the Bible is still relevant for that. And it's relevant for training or ongoing instruction. The thing that has built a generation of disciples to come. Now here's this. He says, why is all of that important for you to know, Timothy? So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped. In other words, able to meet all, underscore that word, all demands. Think about right now the gap between your belief and how relevant and important the Bible is and that word able to meet all demands. So if my understanding of what I think the Bible is useful for and helpful for is kind of down here, especially the way I treat it or how often I spend time in it and that kind of thing, Bible is saying it's really much more available to you than you take advantage of. That all keeps on going right through the roof. You don't even know where all ends because all is all. And yet what God is saying to us, what Paul is saying to Timothy, is that this book is so relevant, applicable, and important that it's able to meet all demands. So where is the gap between our understanding of that and how much we rely on that and trust in that? Through the ages, when properly studied, when properly taught, when properly applied, the Bible continues to prove its applicability to the situations of life and the only reason why the bible will ever be viewed as out of date is the ungrowing unwillingness the growing unwillingness I'm sorry of man to be changed by what they're seeing in that mirror let me wrap it up here with this i'm going to do this really quickly we need three essential components in order for us to understand how the bible is to be applied how it's to be learned how it's to be adhered to The first is one that I've referred to over and over again, and so uh, I won't beat a dead horse here, but it's that concept that comes out of the difference between the wise man and the foolish man in Matthew 7. We understand that the foolish man is one who heard the truth. He could be just like any of us in church today saying, well, hey, I was there. I heard what was said, but I don't really want to do anything about it. That's the condemnation on the foolish man as he heard but didn't do. The praise of the wise man is one that heard and said, I'll go do that. And so we have examples of that all throughout scripture of someone who obeyed and it went well for them. And you might remember when we were in James, James used a phrase that said someone who is swift to hear, swift to hear is someone who listens with the intent to obey the first essential you and I need to apply God's word to understand it and hold it rightly is to listen to it, to be willing to look in the mirror and say, God, whatever you reveal to me out of it, I will do. That's being swift to hear, not just, oh, see if you can impress me today out of my devotions, God, and then pick a verse. The begats didn't matter to me. I'm moving on. But to be swift to hear is somebody that comes to the word and say, Lord, what do you have for me? How do I need to give this more authority in my life? That's the first thing we need is being able to hear. The second thing we need, fortunately, has been a gift given to us by the Lord, and that is the presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 14, we actually won't put the verse up right now and everything. We'll just move through. But John 14:16 and 17 is where Jesus says, if I go away, I will allow for a helper to come. That is the Holy Spirit who will start to abide in you. The apostle John says later on in, the, in his first letter to the church, he says, as for you in verse two, uh, in chapter two, verse 27, he says, as for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you. This is from the Holy Spirit. It's there. And you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. And just as it is taught you, you abide in him. Here's what I hope to be a real quick lesson on sola scriptura about the scripture interpreting the scripture. For years, we have heard people justify their unwillingness to fall into the authority of a church or to make themselves available to be around all of you folks by saying things like, well, the Bible tells me I got all I need right in here. The Holy Spirit's in there. I don't need anyone to teach me. I'm good. So leave me alone. Don't challenge me. Don't try to convict me. Don't want more out of me. Because if the Lord wanted me to do it, he'd tell me. First John says it. But this is where we need the Bible to interpret the Bible. Because if I take that verse, I'd have to be like, you know, he's got a point. He does have the Holy Spirit if he really does. And the Holy Spirit, you know, doesn't need any help. He's got a point. But there's too many other balancing scriptures to tell us that what we actually need as our third component in all this is a little help. If we don't use the resources around us to to understand the scriptures more, then we're selling the Lord short and we're being arrogant about it. Romans 10 13 through 15 starts off with the great verse that says, whosoever, who, whoever, I'm sorry, will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And let me find the page that I'm, yeah, there it is. Okay. <clears throat> Continues and said, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in whom they have not heard? And here's the human instrumentation. And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. I can attest to you this morning that I do not have beautiful feet. So I I think the Bible is being generous when it says that. But the reality is this, is that as preachers of the word of God, we are here and put in your life to help along the process, not to take the place of, but to assist where this message is going to go is picking up on this human involvement, this, this job description, if you will, that God has given the pastor of the church, because it helps us understand what we should expect and want in a healthy church environment. Again, if we're holding the mirror up, then the leader and the pastor is looking at it going, okay, am I doing all this? But also for the church people to say, I need to make sure I'm valuing, uh, evaluating this correctly. Remember, we're moving targets. We're all over the place. And we could look at something and say, I don't like the way this is going. I don't like the way that was said and everything and make up our mind as to whether or not a thing is good. And maybe we haven't given it time to evaluate what is healthy. What does God want for me more than what I want for myself? To put it in a nutshell and kind of intro where we're going next in a month or so, the church must insist on careful preaching if we are to be a healthy organism that God is Uh, leading. We have to insist on careful. And even in my notes, I've underscored the word careful preaching. Now, next time we'll try to explain what that could look like. Uh, Even sharing with you some of the subjective nature of that, that preaching styles are different from person to person. All right. If you would, please, would you stand and we'll join join me. We'll close our time in prayer. I'm going to ask uh, the ladies again to make your way to the hub. Gentlemen, if you would, if you're able to, and you want to come forward just a little bit Um, that would help too. Let's just pray. God, we thank you so much for the reliability of your word. Thank you, Lord, for its relevance. And I pray, God, that you just help us to adhere to it. Help us to find ways that are are motivating to us to dig in more. Help us not to feel like we have to keep up with the Joneses and do everything our brother or sister in Christ is doing in in Bible study, but do the thing that, that anchors your word deep within our souls with our personalities involved. Help us to remain faithful to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.